bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, May 14, 2019. Three years ago this week, Senators Maria Cantwell and then Senate Finance Committee Chairman Orrin Hatch were preparing to introduce the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act of 2016. That bill included a phased-in 50% expansion of federal low-income housing tax credits, income averaging for affordable housing developments, a minimum 4% credit rate, and more. Some of those proposals have been enacted, or at least in part, as part of other legislation over the years. For example, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2018 created and enacted the income averaging set-aside option, in addition to temporarily increasing the amount of 9% low housing tax credits by 12.5%. We do expect a new version of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act to be introduced in the current congressional session soon, with Senator Cantwell once again one of the lead sponsors. Turning to this week's podcast, we have a lot of news for you, starting with House passage of a disaster relief bill that includes $2.2 billion in community development block grant disaster recovery funding. We'll also have news about an Opportunity Zones reporting bill and legislation to replace current renewable energy tax credits with new technology-neutral tax credits. I'll also talk about a hot topic that affects housing finance agencies, loan from the tax credit property owners, and likely the tenant of those properties. Yes, I'm talking about the final amended compliance monitoring regulations for low-income housing tax credit properties. I'll also have brief news from HUD on eligibility for housing assistance as well as guidance on calculating the over-income limit for public housing. Then I'll touch on Opportunity Zones news related to a Freddie Mac report and the Federal Housing Finance Administration affordable housing incentives. After that, I'll have some updates from various states relating to state low housing tax credits, state historic tax credits, and linking state incentives with federal Opportunity Zones. If you're ready, let's get started. Many of our listeners we're in Puerto Rico last week for the Novogratic Investing in Puerto Rico Conference. The event highlighted various resources and strategies that could help drive investment into rebuilding Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands after Hurricane Maria. Disaster recovery and relief have also been hot topics in Washington, where lawmakers have discussed how to provide assistance to communities affected by natural disasters. On Friday, the House passed a $19.1 billion disaster relief package that includes assistance for areas, including Puerto Rico, affected by hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, and wildfires since 2017. The bill includes more than $2.2 billion for community development block grant disaster recovery. Now that's twice as much as the amount in the disaster aid bill the House passed in January for 2018 and 2019 federally declared disaster areas that included the recent tornadoes in the Southeast and floods in the Midwest. The Democrat-led bill passed with a vote of 257 to 150, including 34 Republicans. Now, despite this first step, there's still a long way to go before any disaster-related legislation is enacted. There's not enough support for the bill in the Republican-controlled Senate at the moment. Senate appropriators are still negotiating a compromise. Furthermore, the President opposes the House bill, saying that Puerto Rico has already received ample disaster relief funding. I'll keep you posted on the status of disaster recovery legislation and any potential policy providers that could be added on later. 
Please see a link to the Disaster Supplemental Bill, H.R. 2157, in today's show notes. Turning now to Opportunity Zones, a bipartisan group of senators last week introduced Opportunity Zones reporting legislation. The senators introduced the reporting bill for sponsors of the original Investing in Opportunity Act. They are Democrats Cory Booker of New Jersey and Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire, as well as Republicans Tim Scott of South Carolina and Ty Young of Indiana. Ways and Means Democrat Ron Kind of Wisconsin and Republican Mike Kelly of Pennsylvania also introduced a House Companion legislation or a House Companion bill a day later. This reporting bill would require Treasury to collect and report to Congress information on Opportunity Zones investments annually. The information to be collected includes the number of qualified opportunity funds created, the amount of assets, the composition of the funds by asset class, the percentage of Opportunity Zones that have received quality opportunity fund investments and the outcomes for key economic indicators. Supporters of the bill say that reporting requirements provide oversight or help with oversight and help actually measure the success of the opportunity zones incentive. Now, in fact, the original Investing in Opportunity Act included reporting requirements for opportunity zones, but the reporting requirements were removed as a technical matter as part of the tax bill that passed Congress in 2017. Please see links to the bills and the accompanying press releases in today's show notes. I'll also send out a tweet with the links. And you can read more about ideas to monitor the impact of the opportunities of the Senate on opportunity zones in the May issue of the Novograd Journal of Tax Credits. In Renewable Energy News, Senate Finance Committee Ranking Member Ron Wyden of Oregon along with 24 Democratic co-sponsors, introduced a bill to incentivize clean energy. The bill, the Clean Energy for America Act, would consolidate 44 current energy incentives into three tax credits, a clean energy production tax credit, an investment tax credit, and a clean fuel tax credit. The production tax credit would be for up to 2.4 cents per kilowatt hour for clean facilities. The investment tax credit would be 30% for facilities with zero carbon emissions. The technology neutral incentives would phase out when greenhouse gas emissions are reduced by 50%. This is, by the way, the second straight session of Congress in which the bill was introduced. Unfortunately, the bill doesn't have a single Republican co-sponsor, which means the legislation is more a messaging bill for Democrats. I will include more information on the bill in today's show notes, and tweet out the link. Now let's move on from legislation to regulations. The National Council of State Housing Agency last week asked the IRS to rescind, that's right, rescind its final amended compliance regulations for local housing tax credit properties. NCSHA, the National Council of State Housing Agencies, says that the final regulations place an undue regulatory burden on housing finance agencies. You may recall from an earlier podcast that the IRS published final regulations for compliance monitoring of low-income housing tax credit properties. Under those final regulations, the minimum number of units that housing finance agencies need to inspect at a low-income property is determined by a minimum unit sample size reference chart. Previously, temporary regulations gave housing finance agencies the option to inspect the lesser of 20% of the number of low-income units or the minimum sample size in the reference chart. Basically, the final regulations removed that 20% sample size option. For some housing finance agencies, 
This means that the minimum number of units that they'll have to inspect each year will more than double. Now that's according to the Novograd Journal of Tax Credits article that will appear in the June issue of the periodical. Now in the article, many housing finance agencies reported that the new regulations would increase their inspection workload and cost significantly. States with many small geographically dispersed low-income housing for properties could feel the greatest impact. For example, Wyoming's compliance department has just one person who will more than double the number of units that she inspects this summer from 334 units to 721. Now, Instance HA heard similar feedback from other housing finance agencies, prompting the council to request the IRS to rescind the final regulation. The Instance HA letter said that the new mandate would require states to raise compliance monitoring fees. In turn, this raised fee would place a hardship on property owners who weren't expecting an increase in operating costs. And furthermore, those costs may be passed on to tenants if their rents being charged are below the maximum allowable rents. As such, the NSSHA asked the IRS to work with states to develop a risk-based process for determining an appropriate sample size of units rather than a random sample minimum. The new regulations also reduce the advance notice that agencies must give to property owners before a physical inspection or low-income certification review. The advance notice period was cut in half, from 30 days to 15 days. NCSHA recommended a return to the 30-day standard because a 15-day notice is often insufficient for owners and agencies to prepare for the inspections and reviews adequately. Now, if you have any questions about compliance monitoring for your property, please contact my partner, Thomas Dagg. I'll include his email in today's show notes. In other news, HUD published a proposed rule last week to evict undocumented individuals from public housing and other HUD-assisted housing programs. The proposed rule would require all residents to prove eligibility for assistance. That would include any resident of the housing. Now, under current guidance, HUD had permitted undocumented individuals in households containing eligible documented individuals as long as the eligible financial assistance was reduced on a permanent basis. This proposed rule would repeal that guidance. I will note HUD is accepting comment on the proposed rule through July 9th. HUD also released supplemental information on how to calculate the over-income limit for public housing. The notice provided guidance to public housing agencies on how to implement the income limit. For assistance on calculating these over-income limits, please contact a Novogratic partner near you. Next, a Freddie Mac report found that their business in opportunity zones grew more than 75% faster than their growth in business in other areas. The Freddie Mac report emphasized that multifamily rental property will be a key component for quality opportunity funds and said that Freddie Mac will likely target opportunity zones with affordable housing assistance. There's a link to the report in today's show notes and I'll also tweet it out. And in a related item, the Federal Housing Administration last week announced incentives for multifamily affordable housing property owners to build in opportunity zones. The FHFA announced that it will reduce fees for housing that meet certain standards and will create a team to speed up the processing of applications. Now let's turn to some state news, some good news and some not so good news. Starting with some good news, California Governor Gavin Newsom released his updated budget request that included at least two tax incentive 
related items. First, Newsom proposes a total increase of $500 million for the state and local tax credit incentive, $200 million of which would be focused on mixed income properties. Newsom also proposes eliminating the 2020 sunset date for certification for the state tax credit. His budget request also proposes partial state conformity to the federal tax code for the Opportunity Zones incentive. Under Newsom's proposal, Opportunity Zone investments in affordable housing and green technology would be eligible to receive state benefits parallel to the federal benefits. Now, the California legislature has until June 15th to pass the budget. Turning to Maine, a bill was introduced to create a state low-income housing tax credit. The Maine state credit would focus on adaptive reuse to create workforce housing, rural housing, and senior housing. It's the second bill in Maine introduced this session to create a state low-income housing tax credit. The other bill would create a 4% credit with a $42 million annual cap. That bill has a hearing today before the Joint Taxation Committee. Next, in Hawaii, a bill to create a 30% state store tax credit is now on Governor David Ige's desk. The credit would have an annual $1 million statewide cap. And finally, in Florida, a bill that would have revived the state's Enterprise Zones Act and made Opportunity Zones eligible for various state incentives died in committee. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Next week, I'll be at the 2019 Forbes Opportunity Zone Summit, Investing for Impact. The event is next Tuesday, May 21st in Newark, New Jersey. I was invited to be a speaker at the conference, and I do hope to see many of you there. Check it out. I'll send out a tweet today on a link to register. Novogratz will also, though, I want to note, host a Financing Renewable Energy Tax Credit Conference next week in San Francisco. That'll be May 23rd and 24th. I'll include a link to both events in today's show notes, and I'll also send out a tweet for the Financing Renewable Energy Tax Credit Conference as well. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratz. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratz and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.